Well, good morning. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that we have been taking a journey through the Gospel of John, looking at the signs of Jesus. As you know from our discussion, uh, John's Gospel was actually the last Gospel written. Uh, Scholars tell us that Mark wrote his Gospel first. Then Matthew and Luke used Mark's Gospel as a bit of a, a template. But then John, like Paul Harvey, wants to tell the rest of the story. So John begins to tell us about all the things that Jesus did. Seven signs specifically, or seven miracles that Jesus did uh, before his wonderful resurrection. There are wonderful I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John that are not in the other Gospels. And of course, all of the signs of Jesus that we've been talking about thus far ultimately point to the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the great I am, the Savior of the world, fully God and fully man. Now I want to look at the most impactful sign, the most magnificent sign in John's gospel, the sign that changes everything for you and me today. Please turn in your Bibles, your Red Pew Bibles, to the gospel of John chapter 20, Verses 19 to 31, it may be found on page 1154 of your Red Pew Bible. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. And I would encourage you to keep your Red Pew Bibles open as I will be making reference to the text throughout the message this morning. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you are the God who still speaks to us today. That as we open your word, you have a word for us. So Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would help us hear what you want us to hear. You would help us see what you want us to see. And that by your spirit, you would open our hearts in such a way that we would be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray in all God's people's sin. Amen. John chapter 20, beginning with verse 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other's disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. On the evening of that day, that day is the first Easter Sunday, when, as if you read all of John chapter 20, you'll see that Mary Magdalene, very early in the morning, was the first person to go to the tomb to check on Jesus. And when she got there, she saw that the stone had been rolled away. So she ran as quickly as she could to, to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples. But, but as Peter and the rest of the disciples hear Mary Magdalene share her testimony, they aren't quick to believe Mary Magdalene. After all, they remember when they first met Mary Magdalene, she was possessed by seven demons before Jesus cast them out of her. They're not always sure that Mary Magdalene is speaking the truth, so they're, they're anxious, they're worried, and, and Peter and John decide to run to the tomb to see for themselves if, in fact, as Mary Magdalene said, someone has stolen our Lord's body. We can tell from our text that John was a pretty competitive guy because he lets us know that he won that foot race. But Peter's the first one to actually go inside the tomb and see the the clothes folded. The grave clothes have been folded. And they begin to believe the testimony of Mary Magdalene. And they go back to the rest of the disciples. But we read in John 20 that Mary Magdalene actually encounters the risen Jesus for herself. And so she goes and says, I saw the the Lord. He's risen. He, He, in fact, is alive. Now, real quick here, if you were going to make up the story of Jesus rising from the dead in the first century, you would not say that it was a woman who was the first person to see the risen Jesus. Because you see, in the first century, a woman's testimony was not considered to be valid in the court of law, in the court of public opinion. Women's opinions were not held in such high regard as they are today. So you would not have made up the story and said that it was Mary Magdalene who was the first one to see the risen Jesus. But John says it happened that way because it did. And women have been preaching the gospel, telling the good news about Jesus ever since that first Easter Sunday. But the truth is, probably when these disciples hear Mary Magdalene's testimony, they probably don't initially believe what she's saying. That's why they're behind locked doors that evening, because they're afraid of the Jews. They just saw what the Jews had done to Jesus. They had crucified him. And they're wondering, are we going to be next? Notice the first words that the risen Jesus says to these scared disciples behind locked doors. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And most likely Jesus would have said these words to his disciples in Hebrew, Shalom Alechem. Shalom Alechem. Shalom is translated in English as peace, but it means more than just the absence of war or the absence of conflict. Shalom means wholeness, health, security, well-being, salvation, peace with God specifically. You see, Jesus came to this earth to bring us shalom, to bring us peace with God. 
prior to Christ's arrival to this earth. Humanity was living in enmity with God, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, who committed that original sin of eating the forbidden fruit. Humanity has been rebelling against God. In fact, we, we've inherited a sinful nature, a selfish, sinful nature that we're born with, as you read in Psalm 51, that left our own. We are prone to wander from God. We are prone to, to resist God's ways and, and to do the very exact opposite. But the good news of the Gospels, the good news of all four of the Gospels, is that God loves us too much to abandon us in our sin. Now, God, in his great love for us, chose, well, to send his son to become one of us, born as a baby in a lowly manger, who grew up among us and began to teach us and and heal us, and ultimately died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. Is he who is without sin, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he who is without sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul reminds us in Galatians, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us so that our sins might be atoned for, so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might have a right relationship with God, so that we might have shalom, peace with God, so that ultimately we might have salvation. One of the disciples is not there when the risen Jesus first appears. Thomas misses the original appearance of the resurrected Jesus. Notice what Thomas says when the disciples, the other ten disciples, tell him that they've seen the risen Jesus. Now, we have to remember, Thomas has spent the last three years of his life hanging out with Peter and James and John and Andrew and all those guys. He knew them well. And all 10 of the remaining disciples, they're all telling him, they're like, man, we just saw the risen Jesus. And and what does Thomas say in verse 25 of our text this morning? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, that sounds gross to me. But unless I do that, I will never believe. For Thomas, seeing was believing. Just as it was for Peter and John. They had to see the empty tomb to believe the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Yes, for all of them, seeing was believing. Despite the fact that Thomas had seen all the other signs that Jesus had already done as reported in the Gospel of John. Thomas was there when when Jesus turned water into wine. Thomas was there when Jesus healed the royal official son from 20 miles away with simple words of his mouth. Thomas was there when, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Thomas was there when Jesus fed the 5,000 men with just five barley loaves and, and two fish. Thomas was there when Jesus walked on the water in the middle of a storm while they were in a boat to join them. Thomas was there when Jesus gave sight to a man who was born blind in John chapter 9. And Thomas was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead with a simple command of his mouth. Lazarus, come out. And he did. But nobody could even imagine that a resurrected Jesus would would appear behind locked doors. Notice that John is very careful to tell us in both verse 19 and verse 26 that the resurrected, the risen Jesus appears to them behind locked doors. It wasn't like Jesus knocked on the door and they opened it up and there was the risen Jesus. No, suddenly he appears behind locked doors doors. Who's ever heard of such a thing? It's hard for Thomas to comprehend that Jesus could rise again and somehow appear to them, the other disciples, behind locked doors. 
No, Thomas is going to have to see it in order to believe it. And can we blame him? How many in our culture are like that today? Seen as believing. We live in a postmodern world where truth is based on one's perspective. It's all relative. And so it's based on your own personal experience. And so in order for us to believe something, we have to see it. And now with the information age that we live in and the dawning of the Internet, we know we can't believe everything we read. So we've got to see it for ourselves. We've got to experience if we really want to believe it. Yes, personal experience is paramount to belief in our culture today. Did you know that there was a study done at the University of Texas of Austin that says that Americans have the ability to, to remember 10 to 20% of what we hear, 30% of what we see and hear, but 90% of what we experience. Yes, we will not forget our, our personal experience. And thanks be to God that the, these disciples who experienced the resurrected Jesus behind locked doors never forgot that experience. And they left this experience and they began to preach to others the good news that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Okay, I know it's not Easter, but just be ready for that. It may happen one more time, just so you know. It's the good news that uh, Jesus is alive. In fact, history tells us that these men were, were so faithful to that proclamation that, well, that 10 of the 12 original disciples were actually willing to die as martyrs for their faith. And so that the most logical explanation for the faithful testimony of the disciples, the life and the martyrdom of the disciples, is that they had, in fact, seen the risen Jesus. They, they had touched the nail-scarred hands. They put their hands in his side. They, they saw him and they touched him and they could feel him. And so they believed. What do we need to believe today? Thomas said he needed to see for himself, that he needed to touch the nail-scarred hands, that he had to feel the side in order for him to believe. Do we need to see the risen Jesus? Do we need to touch the risen Jesus? Do we need to hear him in order to believe? Because Jesus tells us in our text this morning that blessed are those, we are blessed when we believe and yet do not see. What personal experience of God do we need to have in order to believe today? It was interesting, last weekend my wife and I and our kids, we all went skiing in Taos, New Mexico. Uh, My wife is a very good skier, I'm probably a subpar skier. And so my wife was trying to teach John, our youngest, who's eight years old, how to ski. And so she's a good instructor, she was teaching him the snow plow or what we call the pizza you know, you get that, put your skis kind of in this direction, kind of point, pointed, and that helps uh, shed the snow. I, on the other hand, was trying to keep up with my two daughters, which I didn't do a very good job of. They ski much faster than I do. Uh, but the good news is that if I lose my daughters, I can easily call them on a cell phone because my two girls both have cell phones. So that if I lose them, I can call them. Sarah does not have that convenience because, well, John is eight. He doesn't have a cell phone. But she's a very good skier, and she thought, I can keep up with John as we go down this mountain. Well, if you've ever been to Taos before, there's some green trails that go from the very top all the way to the bottom. But the problem is, multiple times, this green trail gets crossed with, well, with the blue path, which is a little more difficult to ski, or even a double-blacked diamond. Very hard to ski. Well, John was skiing pretty fast. He had that snow plowed down, and he was going straight down the mountain at a speed that would have made Lindsey Vaughn proud. I mean, it was, <laughs> he was quick. And Sarah's trying to keep up with him, you know, and she's about my age, you know, exactly. And so we're trying to, and she loses him. He goes down the wrong trail. And in desperation, she says, Lord, please help me find my son. Because this is President's Day weekend. There were thousands of people on the mountain that day. 
So God, Lord, please help me find my son. We didn't have a good meeting point to meet at. I thought I could keep up with him. Lord, please help me find my son. And then her phone rang. And it was a 210 number from San Antonio, the area code where my wife grew up. Hello? And the voice on the other line said, yes, are you John's mother? <coughs> yes, I am. Where is he? And the woman said, oh, it's fine. He's with me. I'll help him get down the rest of the mountain, and we can meet you at the restaurant down at the bottom. Um, and then my wife was curious. She said, are you from San Antonio? And the woman said, well, yes, I am. And Sarah said, well, I'm from Alamo Heights. I went to Alamo Heights High School. And the woman said, we live in Alamo Heights. She said, no way. <laughs> and she said, well, Sarah said, well, my maiden name is Browning. And she said, no way. I go to Redeemer Presbyterian Church with John Browning, my wife's cousin. How many Presbyterians do you think were on that mountain that day? <laughs> Not many. I recently learned at our national gathering that there are actually more Walmart employees in the United States than there are Presbyterians, okay? So we're not a really big denomination as things go, and yet when my wife is talking to God about helping her find her son, God says, well, I'm going to take this Presbyterian from San Antonio who goes to church with your cousin, I'm going to have her be the one who finds your son, John. So there'll be no confusion that God was answering our prayer. It's in the church we know that believing leads to seeing. As we put our faith in Christ, we begin to see that God is moving all around us, that our God is so faithful that he will never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 29 to 31, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Our God has numbered the very hairs of our head. And for some of us, that number changes every day, but God keeps an active count. He knows how many I've got and how many I lose, and it's okay. God is always with us, always watching over us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, as Jesus says in his final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the fact that Jesus is God incarnate and in control and always with us does not mean that life is going to be easy. No, we know that sometimes we will face challenges, we will face hard times, we will face grief because we live in a fallen and broken world where sin and, and disease and death abound. In fact, we know from Scripture that, well, that many of Jesus' early disciples are, are killed for their faith in Christ. And, and Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 33, that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world, Jesus said. And we can see from our text this morning that Jesus has not only overcome the world, but he has overcome the grave. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything for us today because it helps us see that Jesus was, in fact, who he says he was, the Son of God, the great I Am, the Savior of the world. But the truth is, too, that as we live our lives, we can often feel worried and anxious, but we have to know that our God reigns, that our God lives, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. You know, in our culture today, we often think that the worst thing that can happen to someone is that they die. But as followers of Christ, we know that when someone dies, they actually get promoted. They leave this fallen and broken world, and they get to be with Jesus in paradise, as you read in Luke 23, verse 43. 
For Jesus promises the criminal who's hanging next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The Greek word is paradeson. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about the garden before the fall. It's the good news of the resurrection of Jesus is that Death doesn't have the final say for us, but, but John is very careful to let us know that when we come to faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that we're simply to live complacent lives and do nothing. Read those last two verses again of John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus says, now Jesus, or John writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John doesn't say that we, he wrote this simply so that we could have eternal life, but so that we might have life, life today in his name, that we might begin to follow, live as his faithful followers. So what does life in Christ's name look like today? Well, life in Christ's name is... Governed by the shalom, the peace of God. The peace of God knowing that Jesus is Lord, that he has conquered the grave, that he's paid the price for our sins, that he loves us with an unconditional, sacrificial love. And there's, there's nothing we can do to add to that great sacrifice. There's nothing we can do to make God love us anymore, for he's demonstrated, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his great love to us, that while we were yet sinners, broken, fallen, rebellious people, Christ died for us. Yes, in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we have the assurance of eternal life. In Christ we can see just how much our God loves us. Not this much, but this much. And that now love can never be taken from us. And so we have shalom. Yes, life in Jesus' name is governed by him shalom, but it also helps put life in perspective, does it not? You know, we probably give Thomas a bad rap because his nickname is what? Thomas, what is it? Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. We don't, now Peter denied Jesus three times. We don't call him denying Peter. But we call Thomas Doubting Thomas. But Thomas wasn't always doubting. Now he had a season of doubt for sure and we're all gonna go through different seasons of doubt where we question our faith. But, but Jesus meets us in our doubts as we turn to him. And as we read the gospel of John closely, we'll see that in John chapter 11, Jesus tells his disciples that they need to return to Judea. And before they go to Judea, the disciples are like, but Jesus, they just wanted to stone you there. And you want to go back to Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, the region where Jerusalem was? And Jesus says, I have to go there. And so Thomas, we read in John 11, verse 16, it says, So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas is not a man of fear, but a man of great faith who has great courage. In fact, history tells us that after this encounter with the risen Jesus, Thomas traveled all the way to India to share the good news of God's love that we find in Jesus Christ so that others might have the shalom and the peace of Christ. His life in Christ is, is governed by his shalom, but it's, it's not the shalom that we simply consume. No, it's the shalom we're called to share. As Jesus told his disciples, just as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. We live now as God's sent people. His life in Christ is governed by his shalom. We live as his sent people. And it is characterized by worship. Notice what day it was the risen Jesus appeared to his disciples. It was Sunday, the first day of the week. 
And if we read closely, we'll see that we're, later we're told that eight days later. Now, in order for us to understand that that was also Sunday, we have to understand that the way that they counted days back in the first century was they began with the day that you're in. You know, we always say that Jesus was crucified on a Friday, but on the third day he rose again. Well, how does that work? Well, you have to start counting with Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third day. So to say that eight days later, it was on a Sunday, on that first Easter Sunday, that Jesus appeared to his disciples, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. On Sunday, when the disciples were gathered together, Jesus made his presence known to his disciples. And notice that on the first Sunday, Thomas wasn't there, so he, got, he missed Jesus appearing to them. When we're not in worship together, we miss the opportunity to experience Christ's presence today. Because you see that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, when two or more gather together in his name, he is there. As as Paul the apostle explains in Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. That we are the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, and the head cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. We all need each other. So that as we gather together as one body in Christ's name on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus rose again, Christ's presence is made known to us. Yes, the life in Christ is governed by the shalom of Christ, the peace of Christ. Lived with the intentionality of sharing that shalom with others as God sent people and governed by worship of Jesus. Notice what Thomas says when he sees the risen Jesus for himself and is able to touch that nail-scarred hands, his immediate response to Jesus is, my Lord and my God. Thomas doesn't call Jesus a prophet. He doesn't call him his rabbi, his teacher, his leader. He calls him God. Thomas finally gets to see through the eyes of faith who Jesus really is. He is God incarnate, God's one and only son, fully God and fully man. And as we gather together as one body in Christ's name, we celebrate that Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. I said just a moment ago that believing leads to seeing, but in our postmodern world, belonging usually leads to believing. Normally, we are a part of a community or a body of faith, and then we begin to experience the love of Christ through each other and his presence in worship of Almighty God. And then we begin to believe, and then we begin to see how God answers our prayers when we cry out to him. Amen? Amen. Yes. May we do all that we can to invite our friends and our coworkers and our classmates and our neighbors and our family members to join us, to belong, so they might believe so that ultimately they might see what Thomas saw, that Jesus is our Lord and our God. Please join me as he pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you're the God who has made yourself known to us through this remarkable sign behind locked doors, the risen Jesus appeared miraculously. This experience of the risen Jesus drove the disciples and guided them the rest of their lives. God, we thank you that we can stand on that faithful testimony today. And we thank you that as we cry out to you and we turn our hearts to you, you allow us to see, yes, believing is seeing. We get to see all that you're doing in around us. So Lord, I I pray that you would help us see who it is you want us to invite to join us in corporate worship of you. What coworker, what classmate, what neighbor, what family member, what friend do you want us to invite to join us here on Sunday mornings? Because we know that it was on Sunday that you rose again, and it was on Sunday that you appeared to Thomas so that he might see for himself that you are our Lord and our God. 